0: Hi there and welcome to Scandalous. This is a podcast about the most scandalous people and events in history. I'm your anonymous host, Em, and each episode I'll be bringing you stories of the disgraceful, heinous, outrageous, scurrilous, shameful, shocking, and slanderous. This episode, the topic we're going to be discussing is probably my biggest history crush, Louis XIV, or Louis XIV of France, otherwise known as the Sun King and Louis the Great. Louis XIV was king of France from 1643 until his death in 1715. His reign of seventy-two years and a hundred days is the longest recorded of any monarch of a country in European history. Louis' France was emblematic of the age of absolutism in Europe, a trend of power centralized in the monarch, but we'll discuss that more in a bit. Now, though we're going to be talking about Louis today, we're going to start the story with his mother, Anne of Austria. We're going to do this because Anne had a profound influence on Louis his entire life, and it's important to understand that context. So, even though she was known as Anne of Austria, she was actually a Spanish princess and an Austrian archduchess from the House of Habsburg. She became the Queen of France when she married Louis the Thirteenth when they were both aged 14. So she married into the royal family and moved from Spain to France. Anne may end up getting her own episode because she had quite a few scandals in her life, some of which we will cover here as they influenced the life of Louis afterward. Her early trouble began with politics, because as I mentioned, she was a Spanish princess, and the French hated and were always suspicious of Spaniards and Italians, because they were perpetually at war with both countries. Anne's duty as the Queen of France was to produce heirs for the royal monarchy. This was a problem, because Anne had a difficult time producing children. She had stillbirths that Louis, the king, blamed on her, of course, because that's what they did back then. And after a while, the marriage began to fall apart. But, as it happened, about 20 years into their marriage, the king and queen got stuck together during a terrible storm at a chateau. And nine months later, Louis Fourteenth was born on September 5th of 1638. And this event secured the Bourbon Line. By this point, Anne was 37, which was incredibly late to be giving birth in this period. Due to this length between their initial marriage and her first pregnancy, the court gossiped about the legitimacy of the princes, if they were really Louise's sons. Louis XIII's younger brother, who had been in line to inherit the throne before the younger Louis was born, made a comment that he did believe that Louis XIV came from Anne of Austria's body, but he wasn't sure who the devil had put him there. Though it was considered quite a miracle at the time, Louis Thirteenth made a comment that it wasn't a miracle that children should be produced when a man sleeps with his wife. And, 15 months later, and became pregnant again, this time on the 22nd of 1640, Anne gave birth to a second son, Philippe, Duke of Orléans, who founded the modern house of Orléans which still exists to this day. Philippe will definitely be getting his own episode because he was completely fabulous and very scandalous. And unlike many royal siblings, even though they had their disagreements, Philippe was always loyal to his brother. Now we're going to talk about how the boys were raised. They were raised in a very Catholic country by very Catholic parents. Their mother, Anne especially, was incredibly devout and very serious about her beliefs. Louis was raised to believe that his will was the will of God and he was God's representative on earth. Even little Philippe, His younger brother was instructed by Anne to call his older brother his petit papa, or little father, so he would always remember that though Louis was his older brother, he was also his sovereign, his king, and his superior. Unlike most royalty of the day, Anne was very sentimentally interested in her sons and incredibly involved in their lives. At a time when many an aristocratic lady happily gave her children over to a governess and tutors to raise, Anne spent hours every day with her boys and successfully built a sort of domestic atmosphere for their childhood. Louis would foster a desire for the same domestic bliss in his adult life. Anne was an extremely pious woman, as I mentioned, gentle and caring, and she taught her sons the utmost importance of manners and, above all, to act with polite courtesy to everyone. Louis would indeed never become the type of king who yelled at servants or made scandalous scenes in public. Always the gentleman and master of his emotions, Louis was ever gracious and polite to everyone. He was the kind of man who, in his most violent rage, broke his own cane in half so he would not be tempted to use it. He was the kind of king so confident that he didn't need to threaten, if one stepped over the royal line, as one of his chief ministers did at one point. Louis only charmingly responded by tapping his forehead and pronouncing, I have always thought you were mad, and now I know it. He was a king so convinced of his utter authority that, when it was discovered that someone had stolen the gold fringes from his royal bed, Louis's only response was to murmur incredulously, What insolence! The fringes were subsequently returned, with a note from the thief. Take back your fringes. The pleasure is not worth the bother. My compliments to the king." Louis would search for the rest of his life for another woman he could admire and love as much as he did his mother. Upon the king's death in 1643, the four-year-old Louis was crowned King Louis XIV of France. He was obviously too young to rule at this point, so he couldn't reign until he reached what was called his majority, and ended up being named regent and basically ruled the country in his name. This was quite a coup because Louis XIII hadn't wanted Anne to have that much power, he just simply didn't trust her, but after he died, through her own political machinations, she was able to be named regent. And it was lucky for Louis that he had a mother who cared so much about her son's crown, because it was soon going to be in peril. The Fonde was a series of civil wars between the nobles and the monarchy of France between 1648 and 1653. It became so bad at one point that the royal family actually had to flee Paris, and they weren't able to return until royal authority was reestablished. France was perilously close at points to becoming a parliamentary monarchy, which was happening over in England at this same period. But after the chaos of the different sides battling it out during this civil war, the strength and solidarity of an absolute monarchy suddenly became more popular among the people of France. Anne defended Louis's crown as regent boldly and bravely, and Louis would never forget this. It was part of what made their bond so special. The Fronde also had an important impact on Louis and how he viewed monarchy after this he no longer trusted the nobles of france and it became part of his life's ambition to tame the nobility the fronde ushered in the age of absolute monarchy in which the power of the state was centralized in the monarch instead of the nobility which had previously had far more power and in his younger days, Louis was the star of France. He was a beautiful child with gorgeous curly hair, and he swiftly grew into the archetype of a Renaissance prince. Romantic, cultured, intellectual, and a patron of the arts and sciences. He loved the theater and was a phenomenal dancer, which was a highly important skill in this era. Balls and the theater were two of the main sources of entertainment at the time, so dancing was everything, even for men. Finally, Louis was declared to have reached the age of his majority on the 7th of September, 1651. He continued to let his mother and her chief advisor, Cardinal Massahan, run the country out of respect and reverence for the job they had been doing previously. And this is when we get to another of Anne's scandals. I mention Cardinal Mazarin, who ended up being her chief advisor during her regency. And they became very close. So close, in fact, that there were rumors for years that she had actually secretly married the cardinal. For one man, especially an Italian, to have so much influence on the Queen was absolutely scandalous, but she didn't seem to care and continued on as she was going to. Though he was a charming prince and a young Apollo, nobody really knew what Louis would be like as a real king were he to truly rule on his own. And there were many examples of kings, such as Charles II over in England, who yawned during meetings and couldn't be bothered with running the country. I'm guessing this is what everyone expected of Louis. They were about to find out. On the death of Mazarin in March of 1661, Louis completely astonished his court by assuming personal control of the reins of government and by declaring that he would rule without a chief minister. This was incredibly scandalous. No king before had ruled without a chief minister and a bunch of advisors telling him basically what to do. He gathered his advisors before him and said to them, Up to this moment, I have been pleased to entrust the government of my affairs to the late cardinal. It is now time that I govern them myself. As we'll come to see, Louis was no Charles II. He was as manic and hardworking a king as has ever existed before or after, and he was as passionate in his love as he was about ruling his kingdom. His mother and Messeran had inspired in Louis a vision for France, and he was ready to implement it down to the tiniest detail. Now, absolute power gives one the power to do great things. To talk about Louis's achievements could cover an entire podcast, but I'll talk about a few of them here. Much of Paris and French culture that we know today is a creation of Louis XIV. His influence is felt still in modern times, from the beautiful buildings and wide streets of Paris to the fashion industry as we know it today. Entire industries sprang up to supply his sumptuous royal court and the luxuries they all craved. Louis and his subsequent mistresses were all patrons of the arts and sciences, which had the effect of establishing a mini-golden age of art in France. Some of the artists Louis patronized in this period, you may recognize, include Moliere, Racine, and the composer Jean-Baptiste Lully, who dominated French baroque music of this period. Voltaire said that Louis XIV gave greater encouragement to the arts than all of his fellow kings together. He helped make France the new center of culture in Europe. Louis also rebuilt much of Paris and tamed its populace with the first effective police force. He also lit it up at night with torches throughout the city, which made it the first city to be lit at night, which is why it is known as the City of Lights. Though we're eventually going to talk a lot about Louis' many sexual adventures, first we're going to talk about his only real true love, the only one that lasted throughout his adult life, and that is the Palace of Versailles. Versailles was originally a royal hunting lodge in the countryside near Paris. Over decades, Louis transformed it into one of the world's most glorious palaces, See, what Louis imagined was grand. It was beyond anything anyone besides an absolute monarch could imagine and then will into existence. Let me tell you a bit about the palace. Just a few random factoids. So first of all, just remember that everything used to construct and decorate the palace was created in France. Arguably, its most famous room, the Hall of Mirrors, within the palace has a total of 357 giant mirrors. Now, at the time of the palace's construction, Venice had a monopoly on making mirrors. To combat this, Venetian artists were lured to France to create the mirrors there. The gardens of Versailles covered more than 30,000 acres, having 400 sculptures and 1,400 fountains. When the palace was fully operational, around 5,000 people, including aristocrats, courtiers, and servants, lived in the palace. More than 35,000 workers constructed the palace, and the gardens alone took 40 years to build. Some estimates say that the annual cost of maintaining the palace would have been anywhere from 5 to 25% of the French government's income. And after accounting for inflation, Estimates put its cost of construction between 200 and $300 billion. So, try to imagine the palace as a type of modern-day luxury hotel casino. It was giant, full of beautiful things, and the flower of the French nobility. So completely busy and full of entertainment that it becomes a world unto its own. In 1682, Louis moved his residence from the Louvre Palace in Paris to the Palace of Versailles. It became the official residence of the Royal Court of France. So keep in mind that a large portion of Louis' reign in this story takes place in the palace as it is being built and constantly refigured. And this palace was scandalously expensive, obviously. And nobody wanted this thing except for Louis. Nobody truly understood the point of it except for him. He moved the royal residence out of Paris for several reasons. First, he aimed to maintain control of his surroundings by being away from the rowdy city and its very unpredictable masses. This also served as a separation of himself from the common people. His majesty was enhanced by this distance, which made him seem more unapproachable, more godlike and less human. At the same time, he created new court etiquette, which meant living his life almost completely in public, making himself into a sort of modern-day celebrity with adoring fans constantly surrounding him. Everything he and his courtiers did was on a strict schedule and ritualized, from his morning dressing, the levée, to his nightly royal suppers and entertainments, known simply as appartements. Louis ingeniously used the nobility's hunger for power and style against them. He lured them into this exclusive paradise and then trapped them there, as who would want to live away from such an exciting royal court? Courtiers who refused to live at the palace were therefore frozen out of power and importance. If all of the nobles were living under one roof, he could keep his eye on them more easily. And Louis, ever the studious tactician, knew every member of his court, their names, titles, history, and familial connections. He noticed and commented that noble had not been at Versailles often enough. I do not see him often was one of the gravest insults the king could give to an aspiring courtier. This was all genius because the nobles couldn't rebel against his authority if they were busy squabbling with themselves over matters of precedent and who was closest to the king. They couldn't afford to outfit armies if they spent themselves into poverty attempting to outdo one another in refinement and luxury. And all of this enhanced spending and focus on competitive luxury was subsidizing the French markets and industries Louis was trying to create. But what a miracle! If you did happen to spend all of your money to keep up with the Versailles lifestyle, the ever-generous Sun King was there to give his nobles loans from royal funds. And once the nobles were in Louis' debt and could be ruined by him at any moment, he practically owned them. And it worked. The nobility of France were subsequently tamed and slowly domesticated by one man with a vision. Well, at least during the lifetime of the king, anyway. While political intrigue is interesting and all, we're finally at the really juicy part of Louis' story, his love life. Now we get to talk about his many mistresses and scandalous sexual liaisons. Louis's story can basically be told through the timeline of his many sexual and romantic interests, so that's how I'm going to tell it. Though we know that Louis would eventually grow into a great king, we're going to take a little step back in time to his glorious youth, for it was in this period that Louis was introduced to the, shall we say, sensual arts. Queen Anne was worried about her young teenage son. She was worried that he would be plagued by sexual dysfunction, as his father had been, or the unfortunate circumstance of him falling in love with an unsuitable young woman. Therefore, the queen encouraged her good friend, Catherine Belliere, the baron de Beauvais, to deflower the 15-year-old king. Catherine was not beautiful. She was actually known as One-Eyed Kate, as she was indeed missing one eye, and she was much older than the 15-year-old king but she was trustworthy and willing. And this attention was apparently not unappreciated by the young king, as their affair lasted two years, after which the queen dowager awarded Bellière with an estate and a pension. In these days, this early seduction, as we'll call it, would be incredibly problematic considering Louis's age, but at this period, 15 was considered basically adulthood. Louis was at the precious age when men were supposed to be becoming romantically and sexually interested in women. Unfortunately for Anne of Austria and her many plans, this early sexual adventure did not keep Louis from falling for a string of inappropriate young women. There were a few early crushes and flings, but the first really notable amorous interest of the king was part of an infamous set of young ladies known as the Mazarinette. They were the seven nieces of Cardinal Mazarin who had brought them to live at the French court in the hopes of finding them prosperous marriages with wealthy French courtiers. The girls were aged between seven and thirteen years old at the time of their different arrivals at the French court. Queen Anne of Austria took the children under her protection and even allowed the girls and their brothers to be educated together with the king and his younger brother, Philippe, at the Palais Royal. At the time, these were some of the only young women within Louis's daily reach. They were fascinating and beautiful, similar to today's Kardashians. It was almost inevitable that Louis would fall for at least one of them. The Mazarinettes were made up of the Martinozzi and the Mancini sisters. They'll get their own episode, I'm sure, because there is no way I'm going to fill all of their scandal into this one. The sisters were Anne-Marie and Laura Martinozzi, and the Mancini sisters, mm-hmm. Victoire, who was sweet-natured and wise, Olympe, who was Louis's same age and a famous charmer, Marie, Hortense, who would eventually become a mistress of Charles II, and Marianne, who loved poetry. Louis' first flirtation was with Olympe, who had adorable dimples, and in the contemporary description used over and over for the great beauties of this era, she apparently looked like an angel. It's unsure how far Louis actually went in his galanteries with Olympe, but her known character certainly doesn't preclude a full physical affair with the young king. Alas, we will never know. It was different with his next interest. Olympe's younger sister, Marie, the least beautiful of the massirinettes, according to French court opinion and the girl's mother, apparently. The mother had thought that Marie was so ugly that she was going to end up in a convent because she wouldn't be able to find anyone who wanted to marry her. Marie was different than the other beauties at court, though. She was described sort of like a modern nerd, bookish and intellectual, which was not ideal for young women at the time. She was also passionately interested in the arts. Unlike many of the gorgeous but vapid young courtiers, Marie was interesting. She stimulated Louis intellectually. It didn't hurt that she was an excellent writer, which was a common attribute of Louis's early loves, as it afforded them a bit of privacy. She inspired a romance in the heart of the young king, which was rapidly becoming outright dangerous in the eyes of Louis's ever-present mother, Anne of Austria. Louis eventually fell so in love that he wanted to marry Marie, which would have been an absolute scandal. Ancien régime kings did not marry minor nobility. Louis was destined to be matched with one of the great royal heiresses of Europe. His mother and the cardinal were already working on a political marriage for Louis, and of Austria had been planning it practically since his birth. It all fell apart when Massaghan told Anne that Marie was boasting that her hold was so great she could actually force the king to marry her. At this, Anne of Austria, usually such an elegant and regal figure, screamed at the cardinal. If the king was capable of such a despicable action, all of France would rise up against the cardinal, and I would head the rebels. After many tears shed by both mother and love interest... Louis' training and his great responsibility as king kicked in, and he relented. He ended his relationship with his first great love. Marie went to the country and awaited what marriage her uncle would eventually provide her. The choice was the Italian prince Colonna, who was surprised to find his wife a virgin. As the prince said, he did not expect to find innocence among the loves of kings. The Comtesse de Lafayette wrote that, having broken with the spellbinding Marie forever after Louis remained master of both himself and his love. We'll see if that ends up being true.